0: Welcome to Generations. This is Kevin Swanson, Steve Vaughn also with us on this edition of the program. Interesting story that came out of Germany, and I want to compare Germany with what's going on in the United States. And this refers to what's going on with the Roman Catholic Church. And Steve, the New York Times did a piece comparing the liberal German Catholic Church and apparently taking a hard left or a little bit of a left from Rome and doing their best to ordain LGBTQ, I guess, priests. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. Um, you know, I, I thought they were supposed to be celibate, but I, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't claim to understand everything that's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. But apparently they're comparing the liberal German Catholic Church with what's happening in the United States with a more conservative backlash in the U.S. Catholic Church on issues like abortion and LGBTQ. So Germany's liberal clergy apparently is aging with only 48 new seminarians in Germany in 2022 for a church that serves 21 million self-identified Catholics. On the other hand, the U.S. Catholic Church courts 3,000 seminarians for 73 million Catholics, most of whom are conservative on social issues. Most of the seminarians are conservative on social issues. Now, of course, if you look at the American Catholic Church, you're going to see that in general, Catholics are more liberal, in general, than the U.S. population. They're they're going to be more leftist. They're going to go for more of the Democrat, you know, end of things, and and the pro abort candidates that are running for House, Senate, and the President of the United States. So that's what the Catholics do. So we we left the governance of the United States up to card-carrying, church-attending Catholics. This nation would be full of Joe Bidens. Oh, and, oh, by the way, did I tell you that Joe Biden was a Catholic?
1: Oh yeah, he's a good Catholic.
0: Yeah, apparently he is. <laughs> At least according, he communion. according to himself, yes. Yeah. All right, so so what what's what gives here? Now, what's the future look like? Number one is is that the liberal German Catholic Church is aging, which which means that, you know, forty eight new seminarians for a church of 21 million, that turns out to be one priest for every 500,000 Catholics. Um, uh, That's not going to work, Steve. I can see that working.
1: Yeah, so visitation, probably not high on the list. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah that, I mean, how, how yeah, would you visit yeah. 500,000 baptized congregants in the Catholic church in Germany? I mean, that, that guy's going to be busy. And
1: Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, but I'm guessing that most of those aren't, like true Christian Catholics.
0: Well, United States, you know, with some 3,000 seminarians for 73 million Catholics, that's one priest for every 24,000 Catholics. It's not going to be much better, I would say. Uh, Which means what? Which means, yeah, I mean, they they may show up Christmas and Easter. I guess they'd have to do the service outside, you know, one priest for 500,000. That's quite a few showing up on Christmas. Um, but what's the sheep to goat ratio look like? And I think what happens is you drive up your sheep to goat ratio or your goat to sheep ratio as you move more and more towards nominalism. In other words, so much of Western Christianity has been nominal for a very long time. When I say nominal, what do I mean? I mean that the facades are coming down and you begin to see that uh, it was only a religion in name only. So nominalism is the idea of, you know, being a Christian or aligning yourself with a certain sect or a certain philo- philosophy in name only. So you call yourself, I guess, like a golfer. That's your name. I'm a golfer. But I've never really played golf. Yeah. So, if, you know, if I'm, I, I may be a, a member of a club, you know. A golf club somewhere. I'm on the the rolls of a golf club, but I I just don't play golf. So that's nominalism, and increasingly the Germans, the Europeans, and the Americans don't even want the name anymore. They're done with the name. Forget the name. So nominalism is is a period of time at which people call themselves something because apparently their family, or their nation, or their social group aligned themselves with that particular. Religious affiliation because of that, they they refer to themselves as, you know, a Christian or a Muslim or what have you. Nominalism's the problem of being an adherent to a religion in name only. There are nominal Muslims, nominal Catholics, and nominal Protestants. And I want to talk a little bit about this in just a moment. Uh, In some respects, it's a lie, it's lying, it's being deceptive to yourself and to others. So, in other words, you're, you're, you're not being open and honest, transparent as to your real belief systems. And so, I guess what I'm doing on this edition of the program is addressing nominalism, pressing you and me to an honesty about who we really are and what do we really believe. All right, so that's next on Generation. Stay with us. Hello, my friends. For the last 15 years, the Generations team has produced a Christian curriculum specifically for families who want to give their children a God-centered, Bible-saturated, biblical worldview-based education. Our commitment is to restore the Christian faith, generational faith in an age where we are losing faith in this country and almost anywhere around the world where Christian children attend secular schools or use secular curriculum and imbibe secular culture. Now, we're not relying on the pre-Christian Greeks For an educational model here, we're not relying on the post-Christian secularist for the education model either. Our curriculum is based in a biblical worldview. We put hundreds of Bible verses in the history books and integrate the truths into the subjects. We want to glorify God on every page of the science books. We immediately integrate knowledge into life application and natural revelation with special revelation. We keep Christ at the very center of the history books with preparing the world for Jesus and taking the world for Jesus. I believe God is calling this generation in this highly secularized age to a radical change in how they disciple their children. Please check out our program for education of your children and grandchildren at www.generations.org. And we're back on Generations. This is Kevin Swans as well, Steve Vaughn with me. Now, pressing into this issue of nominalism today on the Generations program, are you a Christian in name only? Now, to be a true Christian, you need to believe what Christians teach, or more specifically what the Bible teaches about the fundamentals relating to truth, reality, and ethics. And to be a true Muslim, like if you say, I'm a Muslim, to be a true Muslim, you need to believe what Muslims teach about the fundamentals relating to truth, reality, and ethics. Now, I think typically what happens is people are raised in a particular place in which there is an imposition upon them by their society, by their family, by the nation, by the national government, in the case of Muslim-driven governments, to, to be, to associate yourself with a certain religion. Now, I, I, I think every young person should ask the question, well, if I am a Christian, what, what is it that Christians believe? What, what would it be to be a Christian? And I think the same thing for Muslims. At some point, somebody needs to wake up and say, well, I've been identifying myself with the Muslim religion, but uh, what is it to be a Muslim? Now, the, the Muslim religion does present a very externalistic approach In which it's probably quite a bit easier to be a nominal Muslim than it would be to be a nominal Christian. In other words, if if you pray, you know, X number of times a day, if you take your one trip a uh, a lifetime into Mecca, if you uh, participate in these four to five different activities, then you are qualified to refer to yourself as a Muslim and still not really know anything about the belief system of the Muslims. You might you may not even know the words you're saying when you're praying to Allah, and yet you just mouth those words. And because you go through the motions, you seem to assume that you have the right to call yourself a Muslim. Now, there are those who say they believe a certain thing, or they align themselves with a group of people who say they believe certain things, but they say it because they're taught to say it. They learn the catechisms and they parrot the catechisms, but they don't really know they may not even understand the things they're saying, and they certainly do not believe the things that they're saying. So, And I would argue, Steve, that most Muslims and Christians are practical atheists. That is, they don't fear God. They don't believe that God made them. They do not believe that God will judge them, and they do not fear God, and therefore they do not live in the fear of God. But here's the question. What do they believe? Okay, so If they don't believe that, what do they believe? Now, I think the average person on the streets, whether they be a nominal Muslim or a nominal Christian, I think, number one, they are believing that there will be no judgment day. They are believing they can do whatever they want to do in the here and now. They're believing that when they die, that's the end of it they believe that they should live their lives for their own benefit, get as much money as they can possibly get and have as much fun as they can possibly have in the here and now. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that's everybody. I'm not saying that's, you know, 99% either. That could be 85% of those walking in the streets, but I would say this is predominantly what people believe. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. I think that is typically what the average person living in the average country, industrialized type of country today, believes. They believe it, they act upon it. And that's what I think the average person believes. They believe that the highest value in life is stuff, getting as much money and having a good time, and uh, that's practical atheism. And it, of course, is foolishness. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, he's acting as if there is no God because he's holding strongly to a presuppositional position. That there is no God that that's that's his day to day mentality as he wakes up and gets out of bed. He's saying, well, today I'm going to continue to try to have a good time, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow I die. I, I think that's the average person's world and life view.
1: Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, one step above that might be a lot of the other people. And that would be the practical deist that God sort of wound up the world and he's left. And so they're going to live essentially the same way. But if you would ask them about, you know, heaven and hell, you know, well, if there is, I mean, if there is a heaven and a hell, um, you know, I, I think I'll go to heaven because I think my, the good things that I did outweighed the bad stuff. You know, I haven't killed anybody. Um, You know, they, they go through and they talk about all the, you know, things that they didn't do uh, that were really bad. And, and so, you know, I think, you know, if there happens to be a God uh, and there's a heaven and a hell, I think that I would make it to heaven because, you know, I'm essentially a pretty good person for the most part. So
0: here's my question. Okay. So you're talking about these nominal Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, in some cases, So, given that's the way the average person lives their life, why go to church on Christmas, Easter, or even on a regular basis? Why go through the motions? And I think the reason they do this is as a backup plan, a hell insurance policy. Mm -hmm. You follow me? I mean, just in case. Okay, just in case. So, there's a sort of backup plan in mind. Now, that's not the way they live their daily life, and they don't assume that God exists, there will be a judgment day in which every person will be called to account. They, they're they not they're living their lives that way. No, no, no. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So that's fundamental. But there is a little bit of a guilty conscience. There's a little pricking of the conscience that's still there for the majority of people on planet Earth to this day. There's are still conscience, And so because they just feel they need a backup plan, they will do something of a religious experience on a weekly basis or twice a year basis. And that's the way the average person lives their life. So that God or Allah or whoever's out there will feel better about Joe and Jill paying attention to him once or twice a year and throwing a little money and time in his direction. Yeah, about pacify him. That does take care of any kind of issue that might be there if it's there, you know. So here's the question. Wow. What do you believe? What do you really believe? What do you hang your soul's eternal destiny on? Now, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, first and foremost, what you should believe is God's word. That's number one. Not your word. Not what you think. Not what you've come up with. Not your cheap little philosophy that you picked up, well, in your own head or from the latest Barbie movie or whatever you watched. No, 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 no. You don't have any kind of an epistemological authority. There's, there's no ultimate authority that comes out of your own brain. You don't, you don't have anything of an understanding of the ultimate truths. And you can't come up with these yourself. There's no, no, no way you could do this. Absolutely. <laughs> there's no way you can establish any certainty of any truth proposition in your own head. No, 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 no. No, no, you've got to go to an ultimate authority that is God's word, God's revelation, God's truth, and God's promises. You have got to go to God's word first and foremost and hang everything, everything you believe on the word of God. That's number one. And then number two, for salvation, because all of us know we need salvation. We need salvation from sin, from guilt, from the screams of the law that scream at us. We need salvation from death. Now, here's, here's the issue, though. You sinned against God. You broke his law. You can only get right with him on his terms. Now, Steve, let's, let's say that I broke the law of a certain king in some kingdom. Okay. I think this will help people to understand what I'm talking about. Say you broke the law of a certain king in a kingdom. You come into his courtroom and you say, uh, sir, I realize I broke your law, but I'm going to make it up to you on my terms. <laughs> what, what would the king say, Steve? What would the king say at that point?
1: I, I think after he got done laughing, <laughs> he would say, uh, uh, no, uh, these are my terms, my law, my judgment.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And you, you broke my law. And what you're telling me is that now you're going to make it up to me on your terms. You, you took it upon yourself to determine your own behavior. And the law by which you would live in my kingdom, you broke my law. And then you walk into this courtroom and tell me that you're going to get right with me on your own terms. It's not going to work. Sorry, that is not going to work. So the point is that you, you have got to get right with God on his terms. As he's communicated to it in his word. And So, so it's very simple. I think it's a very simple concept. You come to understand reality and your own position by the word of God, and that is that we have broken God's laws. We have sinned against God, and we deserve eternal judgment, eternal hellfire damnation upon ourselves for our breaking of his law, the transgression of his law, and therefore we must go to his terms. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is, God provided a Savior. And this is His only way of salvation, that is, through the Lord Jesus Christ, by repenting of our sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who will save us from our sins, the only means by which we will be forgiven, cleansed, set free, and saved from our sins And we are saved by his death and by his resurrection. We believe it. We receive it. We respond in faith to it. And then we walk in it. So that's it. That's it. But Kevin,
1: I... I, I like to think of God more as a God of love and mercy. That He's not going to judge me. That that's what I, you know, that's what I consider I'm, God to I'm be. I'm hearing
0: some carving. You know, that's what I'm I hearing. Would. Some carving, some carving <laughs> of an idol. You know, there's carving. <laughs> this is yeah. somebody creating their own God to grabbing a tree and carving a little God out of it according to the imaginations of his own heart. I mean, that's what it is. Idolatry. That's just idolatry is what that yeah. is. You created your own God. In, I in, like in, to in think it, of God. I like to create a God. <laughs> I like to carve a God out of my own imagination. And this is what court a God that I want to kind of create for myself. You're right. Yeah. yeah that's just, just typical idolatry yeah. that's happening in uh, our world today. So friends,
1: and it's the only. It's the only relationship that we can ever do that with. If I were to come to you and say, Kevin, I like to think of you as, and and just start listing things yeah. off, it's like, well, that's not who yeah, I am. Like, like, yeah, but Stop I want to think Steve. of you. That. I mean, hey, you're
0: creating me in, in your own image, and I don't want me created in your image. Okay. All right.
1: Yeah. So I don't think God feels any different than right, that. It's right, like, right, no, right. I, I am Good who point. I am. Okay.
0: So friends, first and foremost, first and foremost, if you're a Christian. You believe God's word. I'm making this as simple as I can possibly make it. You take his definitions of reality, his definition of origins, his definitions of law, his definition of salvation and how we come to be saved. You take it from the word of God, first and foremost. And one more caveat that I want to leave you with. His terms of salvation do not change as the Muslims would like us to believe as apparently God gives a new revelation that contradicts the previous revelations in the form of the book of the Quran, And so, friends, that's one other the caveats that God has already revealed himself to us all the way back in the very first covenant of grace that's revealed to us in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so that comes all the way from the very, very beginning, and that basic redemptive message has not changed how we get saved does not change from Old Testament to New Testament. There is a unity of the covenants. That's that's critical, absolutely critical to our faith. And it cannot change with subsequent revelation as the Muslims would like us to believe. So that's the other caveat here. So how do you know you actually believe these things? That's where I'm going to leave it today. How do you know that you actually believe this? Or maybe you're just nominal. Maybe you on the one hand, say, yeah, 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 and you've been saying, yeah, 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 yeah for a very long time, and you're just a nominal Christian, but you're not really a Christian. You don't really know Jesus, and and you don't really have faith in him. So how would you know that you actually believe these things? Well, just a couple of things. You believe God's word if your thinking and speaking and living are more and more consistent to it. And you would not be constantly contradicting what you say you believe by your life. In other words, there's an increasing level of consistency that's going on as you're living out the things you say you believe. And also one more thing, you would not be looking elsewhere beyond God's word for another source of truth. And when you come across contradictory sources that kind of wolf in on us, which happens all the time, what do we say? Well, we go back to God's word. When they say to you, this is Isaiah eight nineteen. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. To the law and to the testimony. That's it. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. All right. So that's, there's a consistency about where we go for truth. And that's why, Christians are always in the word. They hear the words of the shepherd and they follow him. That's how you know the difference between the sheep and the goats. And there's so much more to say, but I just leave it there in a simple way on this edition of the Generations Broadcast. Friends, I encourage you to my book called Worldview, what we believe, what they believe and why they're wrong. My very basic introduction to the Christian faith and a contrast between the Christian faith and all of the other uh, pseudo-faiths that have been concocted over the millennia. And so we contrast the Christian faith, provide a little bit of apologetics, but ultimately present a Christian world and life view on subjects like truth, reality, ethics, God's law, and of course, soteriology, salvation as well. All right, that book, Worldview, available with a study guide as well. We, we target about 11th grade for that subject. It's called Worldview, and you can get the uh, workbook as well as the textbook at generations.org. It's generations.org for your copy of Worldview. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.